It's the first Prez Monday check-in. We'll have a chat, but not spill tea. Hey, it's the first Prez Monday check-in. We got the Bible and Greg and me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of the Monday check-in. I'm Damon Jensen-Heitman, one of the pastors, First Presbyterian Church, Hastings, Nebraska, joined by... Greg Allen Pickett, the other pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Hastings, Nebraska. Here we are a week, almost a week, into the season of Lent. Yeah, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Five days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what edition of this it is. Usually it's like, yeah. It's the... President's Day edition or something. First full week of Lent edition of the Monday check-in? Yeah, that could work. I know I know a lot of people mark their calendars by the season of Lent. I'm sure of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, why wouldn't you? Right. I mean, six weeks of reflection and repentance yeah. and, yeah. Everybody that I know does it. Really? Everybody? Yeah, I'm going to stick with that. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't know. I only know like six people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. <sighs> so, yeah. Uh, so we are into Lent. And uh, the Monday check-in, for those who don't know, is uh, what we do. We take a little look and we preview the scriptures that we're going to use for the upcoming uh, Sunday. Let's talk about some of the themes, ideas, questions uh, that we ha- might have for them, they might have for us. And then we switch gears and talk about the life of the church at First Pres Hastings. So, and I think, Greg, it's your turn to open with prayer. All right, let's do it. Gracious God, we thank you for accompanying us each step of our lives. You promise that you're always with us. We're not always aware of your presence, but that doesn't mean that you're not there. And so as we enter this season of Lent, both individually and as a family of faith, uh, we ask you to heighten our awareness of your presence in our lives. As we seek to journey with Jesus to Jerusalem and to the cross, may we be aware of the ways that you are guiding our steps, the directions you are pointing us in, and the things you are calling us to do and to be. As we study the creeds and confessions of the church, may we recognize the ways that you are at work amongst your people at the time that these confessions were written and how the words that were written then still speak to us today. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So during Lent, we have endeavored to study some of the confessions uh, that that the PCUSA clings to. In our beloved book of confessions, which is part one of the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church, it includes ten confessions. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Sure. Yes. (laughs) Um. It was nine, and then one was added uh, about six years back. And so there are there are ten confessions in here, and we're going to study five of them during this season of Lent, and are pretty excited about that opportunity to do so. Oh, I misspoke. There are twelve confessions in here. Well, I think I hear the Presbyterian police pulling up. Yeah. 
Gotta watch out. I hear their distinct sirens. There are 12 confessions in here. We're studying five this season of Lent. It's possible next season of Lent will... Well, see, that's not fair, though, because it's counting the shorter and larger catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Mm-hmm. And I kind of group all those together. There's the Westminster Confession, and it has its shorter and larger catechisms. So well, I was actually correct the first time that there are 10, not 12. You're correct according to you. Well, right. <laughs> They have them as as two separate things. They have them as three separate things. Westminster, shorter Uh catechism, larger catechism. And there are uh, Presbyterians alive today who had to memorize the shorter catechism in order to be ordained, or or not ordained. To become members. To become members as Mm -hmm. confirmands. Uh, We don't require that of our confirmands these days. We don't, because it's... um, You can gain a lot of information doing that, certainly, Right. And it can be cause for a lot of good thought and question and dialogue and conversation. Memorizing things doesn't necessarily uh, prove that you believe in those things. Fair. Right. Uh, Which is, I think, probably the main reason why we don't necessarily do that. We still refer to them um, and and use them sometimes. Um, Yeah. But yeah. And I've never met a person who said, boy, you know what I really loved? was memorizing all that stuff. Sure. Not a single person has <laughs> ever said that. So. Yeah. So there you go. So, yeah. I was reflecting on this. So the, this last Sunday we we did the Nicene Creed mm-hmm. um which took up one page. Yeah. In the Book of Confessions. Yeah. Uh, and following the Nicene Creed in, in our book of confessions is the Apostles' Creed, which actually only takes up like a quarter of a page. Uh, and then the next confession here is the Scots Confession, which we'll be studying today, which yeah, takes up kind of. 15 pages yes. in here. Uh, and then we move uh, to Germany for the Heidelberg Catechism, which takes up 23 pages. And then we move to mm-hmm. Geneva for the second Helvetic Confession. <laughs> mm-hmm. And by then, we're up to 65 pages. Um, we just keep expanding. We don't want to leave out a single detail about the faith, so we just keep adding more and more and more pages. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think there was... And I think that this comes up in the Scots Confession, which... There's also more of a need to define themselves against other folks. Over and against something. Correct. Right. Because this is part of the Protestant Reformation where they're defining themselves over and against Mm -hmm. what at that time wouldn't have been called the Roman Catholic Church. It would have just been called the church. Mm -hmm. But the church had developed in such a way that there were people within it who saw issues that needed to be addressed and so they sought to reform those issues, which is why we call it Reformation. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it started with, uh, with Martin Luther in Germany. Uh, 1520s-ish is when he kind of started doing his work. Yeah. And then uh, John Calvin, a few years later, was doing that in Geneva. And then there was a guy by the name of John Knox who went from Scotland to Switzerland who studied with John Calvin mm-hmm. and took those Reformation ideas uh, 
back to Scotland. And then John Knox, from what I've been reading, was an incredible preacher. And uh, could really I've never heard him. move people with his preaching. And so then John Knox uh, really kicked off or continued the reformation of the church in Scotland, which is what led to the writing of the Scots Confession. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, overlaid with a whole bunch of politics and history, too. Yes. Because the, the church <laughs> and the monarchy were kind of like working together. In England. In England. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, this Protestant Reformation threatened not just the church, but also threatened the power structures of the monarchy because the two were intricately connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of threads. Yeah, to pull at right. Um, it really is, um, and it's it's really it's really too much. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, but part of um, you know part of my thinking about the Scots Confession is the folks who wrote the Scots Confession, John Knox people believe that he was kind of the primary author. Right. There were other authors as well. Five other authors, all who had the first name of John, which is <laughs> a relevant detail, I think. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was the six Johns who wrote the Scots mm-hmm. Confession, and they did it in a matter of four days. Yeah. They were instructed by the Scottish Parliament to write a summary of Reformation theology yeah. And they went away, and in four days they came back with the Scots Confession. Yeah, for this, for the kind of, for the new church in Scotland. Correct. Right, that they were going to establish because they had just gotten some sort of um, political, military uh, freedom. Yes. Right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the, the queen overseeing them uh, allowed for some flexibility of this bubbling Protestant Reformation, but was not going to allow them to take over because of the tie between the monarchy and the church. But she she allowed for that, and then she died suddenly in 1560. And the, the reformers saw an opportunity. And so following her death before she could be replaced, basically, they held a parliament where they had promised not to do anything with theology, and instead the first thing they did was... <laughs> Ask for theology, and they sent John, the Johns, the, mm-hmm. the the six Johns, out to write a summary of Reformed theology, which they did in four days. Came back, presented, and the Scottish Parliament voted on and said, "This is now the basis upon which the Church, and by the Church, it also meant the government because of the ties between the monarchy, shall operate." Mm-hmm. And then it sat in limbo for a while because there was a scramble and there was a new queen appointed and she wasn't going to buy into this but eventually did yeah did you follow all that because no, i didn't no no um it's I, a mess i was just brushing up on my scottish <laughs> history this morning before our uh, mm-hmm. check-in yeah the the takeaway that i get from all of it and, and to some degree is that the the folks who wrote the scots confession and and most many of the reformers wherever they were whether they were in um Germany or Switzerland or wherever else, they um, they were fighters to a certain extent. Okay, um, 
and it comes through in their writing. Um, their writing at times is a, is rather polemic, fiery. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are um, in the Scots Confession. They're um, they're they're not just saying what they believe. They're also like making a point to denounce specific <laughs> specific uh, beliefs or structures. Uh, Arius gets a mention, yeah, in the Scots Confession along with a few other um, kind of notable heresies. And for those who might have tuned in to Dan Deffenbaugh's teaching on the Nicene Creed, Arius. And the Arian heresy was a big part of the creation of the Nicene Creed. So, which was way back in 325 AD. And now the Scots Confession is being written in 1560. So you've got a span of like 1200 and some odd years. And yet they're still making sure that they're um, addressing that. Yeah. (laughs) Because as we talked about in this space last week, None of the good heresies really ever go away. Right. They're always just kind of floating around. Yeah. Um, and waiting. Because there's just something about them that just, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, Arius and others get a shout out. But they're all sort of swept up in this um, fervor and this idea of let's reevaluate everything. Um which seems kind of exhausting to me, yeah, to, to some extent. Yeah, well, and they, they, uh, the Scots Confession is made up of 25 chapters, although chapter is a bit of an overstatement because some of the chapters are just paragraphs. As we mentioned, it's, it's about 15 pages. Yeah. I think all the, the word chapter for all of these things is an overstatement. Yeah. Like, right. I mean, none of them are more than... I don't know if there's any multi-paragraph section. Some paragraphs are longer, but none of them are. At any rate, yeah. But the the fact that they felt the need to label them as chapters, to me, is in, indicative of something. Right. <laughs> and sorry. what's going to happen with the Scots Confession for those who are ardent students of church history? is that it will make its way uh, to become some of the foundation of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was uh, a bunch of these reformers gathering in Westminster Abbey, which at the time was like the Church of England, but they gave space for these reformers to kind of do their thing and define reformed faith. And that Westminster Confession of Faith stands alongside the Scots Confession of Faith as, as some of the foundational documents of our understanding of English-speaking Reformed Christianity, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But here's the part of this that I'm most interested in, is that um, even in the midst of this sort of uh, very polemic language, um, and, and sometimes really rather harsh language, they... They uh, allow them, I don't know, they're not, that's not, they allow some wiggle room. Um, they, they do s- approach it with some sort of sense of humility. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much 
they really believed in that humility, but that doesn't necessarily matter. So there's a, there's a, a preface to the Scots Confession, uh, and they they start off by because they're sending this out to all the all these various churches and communities and saying, "Hey, get on board with this." Right. So the, right? the 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 six Johns have been sent away by the Brit- Scottish Parliament. Come back with this document, mm-hmm. and there's a preface that accompanies the documents. Yeah. And so the preface, yeah, it's a little explainer. Yeah. Right. It's it's the letter that we send with the Advent devotional, essentially. There right? you go. Um, and they write about, it's, it's very, it starts off very Paul, in my opinion, about how they've, they've really wanted to sit down and write this stuff out for a long time. And, um, and now they're glad to have the opportunity or whatever, 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 and to, to sort of explain themselves, um, amidst all of the questions and accusations that they seem to be feeling that they are, are facing from others. And when we get to this uh, last paragraph, and this, the writing is very much of its time, so uh, they use ex- exclusively male-gendered uh, language. But, uh, if any man, we could read person, if any man will note in our confession any chapter, any chapter or sentence contrary to God's holy word, that it would please him of his gentleness and for Christian charity's sake to inform us of it in writing. And we, upon our honor, do promise him that by God's grace we shall give him satisfaction from the mouth of God that is from Holy Scripture, or else we shall alter whatever he can prove to be wrong. So they're in, they're inviting uh, feedback. Or, right or or criticism right right yeah now I'm not aware of them making any edits based on any feedback that they received it's not in the historical record but they they open themselves up to that mm-hmm. so there's there's a humility there saying if you think this is contrary to God's holy word yeah let us know and then we will hold up your uh, your criticism or your suggestion to God's holy word and either we'll show you that in fact, it's not contrary to God's word, or if it is, we will uh, we will alter what we've written. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a, a sense of humility in there, which is um, which is good. Yeah. Um, it also uh, reminds us that while all of this stuff that is being written is extra biblical, they are trying to ground it in Holy Scripture, and so yeah. the centrality of Scripture in the Reformed faith is an important part of this document. Yeah, because they're saying if you have a, if you have a question or um, a, a problem with this, write to us and let us know. And then th- like, we'll show you what we're looking at in the text, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Bible. Right. Is what, they're, is what they're saying. Right. Because um, they don't include the footnotes um, and the references. In the document itself. But, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll prove it to you. Yeah. <laughs> but if, we'll prove to you can't, by showing we, you that it's grounded in Scripture. Yeah. And, and if the, we can't, then we'll change it. Yeah. And we'll alter it. Yeah. And the centrality of Scripture is an important part of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and so 
one of the goals of the Protestant Reformation was to get Scripture into the hands of people in the language they could understand. They called it the, the vulgar language, <laughs> which just meant the language of the people, right? Mm-hmm. Or modern vernacular. And so um, one of the things that started happening in Scotland immediately following this was that uh, Bibles translated into English were put not just into the hands of priests, but into the hands of members of the church. And they would go home and take them home and read them. Uh, One of the things that differentiates a Protestant church from Catholic church are pew racks in the back of the pews where there's a Bible because the Protestants wanted you to have the Bible to put in your hands and read. Mm -hmm. And um, along with that, you need to make sure people can read. And so there was an emphasis on education, specifically on literacy, so that people could read the Bible in their own language and uh, connect with God in that way. Yeah, and the access to information um, almost always drives change. Yeah. Right? Like, yep. We'd continue to see that. Yes. And, you know, take a look at the last... 20, 30 years. Part of the reason changes happen mm-hmm. so much more rapidly because of the yeah. ultimate access to unlimited information, both right and wrong. Yeah. yeah. And now if this sentiment was just in the preface, if it was just in the accompanying letter, okay, okay, big, you know, whatever. They're just kind of being nice. This is what gentlemanly people would write. Okay. Mm-hmm. But then they, they stick a very similar sentiment into the document itself. Okay. In chapter XX, uh, in chapter 20, right? They have a, a section in their confession, in their document about the things that we believe that relate. It's titled, General Councils, Their Power, Authority, and the Cause of Their Summoning. Okay. <laughs> And it begins, as we do not rashly condemn what good men assembled together in general councils lawfully gathered have set before us, so we, so we do not receive uncritically whatever has been declared to men under the name of general councils. For it is plain that, being human, some of them have manifestly erred, and that in matters of great weight uh, and that in matters of great weight, and that in matters of great weight and importance. Um, so, so they're sort of saying like we are, we're not just gonna, we're not, we don't just reject out of hand um, what someone offers to us, what previous councils, gatherings of the church have thought, have written, have assembled. But at the same time, we recognize that these are all human constructs and thereby have a chance um, to be flawed. Right? Or um, manifestly erred, as they say. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sort of go on in that paragraph to say, like, this includes what we are writing. Um, the, the, what we are writing also is is human construct and and could be flawed in some way. Um, and I really like when we get down to the bottom. Um, 
Not that we think any policy or order of ceremonies can be appointed for all ages, times, and places, which would include their own, right? The, mm-hmm. um, for as ceremonies which men have devised are but temporal, so they may and ought to be changed when they foster superstition rather than edify the kirk. Kirk here means church. Yep. Yep. So this this sentiment of this Reformation sentiment of we have to we have to go back over everything. We have to be constantly re-examining right. everything. Um, they are saying in their document also applies to this document itself, right? That this too may be temporal. Um, and if it starts to cause superstition, which I think is a fun word to include, um, rather than edification, then it ought to be changed. And the practices of the church in general ought to be changed Mm -hmm. if they start to cause superstition uh, and not edification, right? Uh, If folks just kind of start doing things, uh, you know, just because that's the way that we've always done them or um, that's the way that we think that it should be without really considering how it should be, um, mm-hmm. then then we ought to change it and and do something different. Stop doing it, yeah. Mm-hmm. When it, what's interesting, too, is that this section that you just read, chapter 20, is precedes chapter 21, which is mm-hmm. uh, the section on the sacraments. Yeah. And in this chapter, they're going to reduce the number of sacraments and uh, reduce it down to just baptism and communion. And so what they're doing is setting up the rejection of a number of the sacraments that the church was doing at the time, probably because they're suggesting that those uh, fostered superstition rather than edifying the church, right? Sure. Uh, So there's an intentionality there as well, I think. Um, But back a little further up in chapter 20, I I just want to reiterate... Again, the focus on the Word of God. Um, if, if we kept reading, so, so far then as the council confirms its decrees by the plain Word of God, so far do we reverence and embrace them. But if men under the name of the council pretend to forge for us new articles of faith, and that's what they're doing. They're forging new articles of faith here, right? Yes. Or to make decisions contrary to the Word of God, then we must utterly deny them as the doctrines of the devils, drawing our souls from the voice of the one God to follow the doctrines and teachings of men. So they're... Again, and then you keep reading, and it's nor yet to form new articles for law which God had not made before, or not for for our belief, nor to give the word of God authority much. And so again, it's, there's a there's an insistence here on grounding everything in the word of God, and that again is one of those tenets of the Reformed faith, different from what they perceived was going on in the church at the time. So the word of God is central to the Protestant Reformation and this particular Reformation in Scotland. Also the sovereignty of God, uh, God's power over all things. And the first few chapters dig into that pretty heavily. So just important. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. They, they appeal to the sovereignty of God. Um, but then they also sort of um, equate the, the church and the state they don't really want to draw a distinction between the church and the state. Which is weird. Mm-hmm. 
But it's, uh, again, a reflection of the context of their time, right? What they knew was the alignment of the church and the monarchy. And they knew that's where they derived power. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, let, but, but that church isn't doing its thing anymore. So why don't we try this new church but not be afraid necessarily to align it with the government as well. And that's because this was a called parliament of Scotland where they were presenting this and they, they were directed by the parliament of Scotland to right. write up the articles of the reformed <laughs> faith. Yeah. And so they were. And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's so many layers going yeah. on here. Now I do think that, you know, if the parliament or someone, if they believed the parliament to all of a sudden be doing something heretical or promoting some sort of heretical belief, they would have been out and out critical. They would have called them out on of it. it. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. no question. Yeah, and they right? would have they would have started a new reformation. Correct. Yep, and they would have tried and they would have tried to start a new church. Yep. And a new state. Yep. <laughs> and they thought, oh, this one will work. Yes. Is <laughs> what they would have thought. So. Uh, but I'm intrigued by this idea of sort of this humility yeah. and and being willing to embrace uh, our, our own limited understanding. The possibility that we don't know it all. Right. And, and to not be afraid about that. Yeah. Or worried about it or self-conscious about it. Okay. Right. Uh, and so I have a, a couple of scriptures that I don't know, maybe they'll make the cut for Sunday morning. We'll see how much more thinking I do. But uh, the first comes from Matthew chapter 7, which is like one of my favorite little bits of scripture. I don't think it shows up in the lectionary. Good question. I I'm, could be wrong. I'll ch- I, we'll check and we'll get back with you on that. I don't um, think so. It is part of the, the Sermon on the Mount, which we've actually been working our way through. And this would likely fall around this Sunday in the lectionary, even though we're kind of going off lectionary, if, if it was in the lectionary. So. Well, it reads like this. This is Jesus speaking. Do not judge so that you may not be judged, which is a bit of scripture. A lot of everybody knows that. But, um, for with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye. Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Mm. And then uh, from 1 Corinthians, um, which is a bit of scripture that... um, People really know. Uh, I'm interested really in the last part of it, but I'll read it all anyway. (laughs) Uh, This is 1 through 13, uh, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body, so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious, or boastful, or arrogant, or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. 
It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I think you've definitely captured the spirit of these passages that you read from the, the prologue to the Scots Confession as well as that section from chapter 20. This, this notion that I may not know it all, and so I'm open to uh, being told that. And there's a, there's a humility there and a willingness to acknowledge that, yeah, we, we don't know it all. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Then meaning when we meet God. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. In the eternal reward, or however you would like to think yeah. of it. Uh, Paul was right envisioning Jesus' return, the second coming. Right. right? And then the great revelation of all things, I, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, I, these two passages speak to me a lot about um, about humility and um, I think there's something about being willing to embrace our own limited nature mm-hmm. that is really important um, and and like even our own limited language or our own limited way of, of thinking about God, mm-hmm. right? That, um, you know, we were, I had the high school students, um, last night studying the gospel parallels, um, uh, which for those who don't know, is a, it's a book. They take the gospel narratives and they put them, the, the well, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and they put them in <clears throat> columns. So it's really easy to compare like, what's in Mark, what's in Matthew and what's in Luke. Um, and, and like we talked about how, you know, the, the depiction of the events on Easter morning are different mm-hmm. in the three gospels, but we really need all three of those accounts in order to get as full of a picture as we can about that. And in order to understand the meaning and significance of that as fully as we can. Right. And like each of us, like the way that each of us envision God or think about God, I guarantee that I think about it differently than you do mm-hmm. and everybody else just because of the way of humans. Right. <laughs> um, and we need all of those, I think, in order to, to try to gain as full of an appreciation as we can of things. Yeah. And so like, there's nothing wrong with seeing dimly in the mirror. That's just what, that's just how we are. Right. (laughs) Um, But if you don't recognize that and if you don't acknowledge that, then it becomes a problem. 
Right. If you think yours yours is the full and complete and only vision, um, but instead we're called to this this humility and and yes, yeah, seeing seeing things from different angles. I was actually just talking with uh, a couple in the church last week about this. Uh, they there's a process by which you uh, write and tell your life story. I can't okay. remember the name, but you get a kit oh, and you okay. go through and, and you sure. write down different events. And so this couple's uh, adult children sent them both one of these kits. Hmm. So they're both going through this, writing down their life story. And obviously their life story intersects at the point that they meet and point, yeah. court and date and get married. And then obviously, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they were chuckling and sharing with me that they have different perspectives on the moment at which their lives intersected and, and that courting and dating and, and even marriage. And, uh, and so their kids are at some point going to read these two books and they're going to read dad's book and they're going to read mom's book and they're going to tell two different stories. And I said, it's not two different stories. It's just, it's the same story told from two different perspectives. And I compared it precisely to Matthew, Mark and Luke mm-hmm. that, that you have these narratives that, uh, may appear to be contradictory, but are really just telling the story of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection from these different perspectives in the same way. And uh, and they had commented, yeah, the, our kids are going to have to realize that the, the actual factual truth lies somewhere between their dad's remembrance of it and my remembrance of it. And, uh, and yeah. I said, but, but, but that's your truth. The way you tell the story is your truth. Because that's how you remember it, and so, anyways, it's 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 just funny that I was just you were doing that with the high school youth, and I was just talking yeah. with a couple of the church about that on Thursday. Yeah. Well, one of the high schoolers asked me, "Well, so like, which one is true?" Like, well, they're all true, right? Yeah. And this is where we get back, where my mind goes back to the Reverend Doctor Walter Chip Buzard, as hopefully my mind will forever. Um, and his like, we're talking about capital T truth. What's the capital? Like, there's a difference. What's the capital T truth um, of the passage? Um, and that, you know, the historical, they met at this time on this day. This person said this, this person said that. Right. That's one, that's a lowercase t truth. Right. <laughs> um, and the capital T truth is uh, the way that their hearts felt in that moment. Right. Um, and yeah, and those... Yeah, those sorts of things. What they were worried their friends would think of yeah. this person, or yeah, that's and all those all those truths can be true. And the important thing, Our truth, the, I, can I think, the point you're making, both through the section of the Scots Confession you picked and these two passages, is the importance of humility, mm-hmm. right? To yeah. recognize that um, whether it's reading the parallel texts of the gospels or whether it's two people telling their life story and where it intersects, you've got to have humility to, to not insist that yours is the ultimate and only. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. But that, that there were other perspectives, there were other people involved, there was other possibilities and, and the writers, the, the six Johns, the writers of the Scots confession had enough humility to mention it both in the prologue as well as uh, in a couple of, and it, this is not the only chapter where that, that humility comes through mm-hmm. of we might be wrong because we're human. And so let us know. And, um, yeah. And, and in the same way that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, don't, don't judge. Mm-hmm. You've got a, you've got a log in your eye. So it's, there's no need to be pointing out the neighbor's speck in his eye. And, 
And in, in Paul's writing of, for we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. We know only in part. And that's by acknowledging that. It's also liberating. Yeah. If we can embrace that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I thought I had to have all the answers to all the questions that come my way on a daily basis, that would be very stressful. Mm-hmm. So it's okay for me to say, I don't know. Let me check on that for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And it's, um, the, you know, the, the writers of the Scots Confession, they, they leave some room for this. They also seem pretty sure. <laughs> Um, yeah. About what they're writing. You know, um, yeah. Luther, I think it was Luther, here I stand and I can do no other. Right. Um, which is an, an, an acknowledgement I always kind of thought of this This is the way that I see this. This is the way that I understand this. And I, I really cannot see it or understand it any other way. Um, that particular here I stand and I can do no other is not necessarily a condemnation of other folks standing in other places. Right. Um, it's it's an acknowledgement. It's that that's, more a self proclamation. Yeah. Right. Um, and this, you know, this <clears throat> this passage from Matthew, it, you know, you should at least. It's not saying that the speck doesn't exist in your neighbor's eye, right? It's saying like. Do some self-reflection. Like take the log out of yours first, right? And then, uh, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, right? Um, this, which is similar to like you know, uh, get your house in order first, right? K- kind of a yeah, kind of a sentiment. Um, which is that a Shakespeare thing? Uh sure. We can I attribute this to Shakespeare. I bet it is. Most things are. Yeah. It just kind of sounds like that, but yeah. So uh, there's this sort of, um, well, like I said at the start, I'm not aware of them making any edits based on feedback that they received. <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe they did. I, you know, I, I don't know. Or maybe they were, maybe they did get some feedback and they were able to walk whoever sent the feedback through, okay, this is where we got this. This yeah. is where, and, and maybe that convinced that person, yeah. you know, uh, of their case. But And like, if you're really curious about any of these confessions, starting with the Nicene Creed that we studied last week or the Scots Confession, and you Google them, you can actually go through and people have gone ahead and footnoted the references to scripture in these. Yeah. So you can kind of, oh, okay, that's where they're getting this idea. This was from this Pauline letter, or this was from this gospel, or this was actually from the Old Testament. Um, but they didn't do that in the edition that they published uh, with the Scottish Parliament in 1560. But they said, if you have questions about it, we'll we'll point it out to you or acknowledge that we might have had it wrong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what do you think, Damon? Will this preach? Well, I hope so. <laughs> nah, it'll, it'll probably preach. We'll figure something out for sure. So, uh, should we switch gears? Yeah. Okay. Who's what? Are, what gear are we switching to? Well, let's uh, let's talk about Lent. And so um, today, an email will be going out uh, to everyone, and including that email will be a link to the adult forum that Dr. Dan Deffenbaugh taught yesterday about the Nicene Creed. Also included will be a link to our Advent devotional guide, which for this week will focus on the Nicene Creed. 
And so we're doing kind of this wraparound thing uh, during the season of Lent and letting our church go as deep as they want to with these confessions and creeds in that the sermon is on it, the children's message is on it too, as we teach about the banners that hang in the memorial room. The adult ed forum is on it, uh, and then the Lenten devotional guide is on it. And so it's a chance to really go deep into these different creeds and confessions, and that's what we'll be doing um, every week during the season of Lent. Uh, and so we hope you'll join us in that. And so that's a reminder then that the adult ed forum on Sunday, which is taught at 915, will be taught by Dr. Deffenbaugh, and he will be providing an overview of the Scots Confession, both the theology and the history of it, as he did with the Nicene Creed last week. So uh, we hope you can join us for that. Uh, that's what's going on on Sunday. Uh, we have our normal Wednesday night lineup this week. Yep. So uh, our pre-K through uh, fifth grade youth come for Wednesday Night Live, and then we have adult choir practice at 645 and adult bell practice at 730. Um, what else do we need to tell them? Um, that's kind of the main stuff for that. Um, the, there are a couple of um, interesting events coming up in the life of the church. Uh, we're very close to March. Um, March days or, away. Yeah, <laughs> hours. Some would say. Um, <clears throat> March twelfth, uh, which is a Sunday, uh, we'll be doing another chunch event, which is a uh, uh, portmanteau. Is that the word? A combination of um, church and brunch. Is that French? I don't know. Maybe. Sounds. It's, Okay. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so church brunch. Yeah. We'll be at Blue Fork. Yep. We're still having church in the sanctuary. Yes. So we did this in the summer and that that caused some confusion, but I think we got it straightened out for folks. Right? Okay. Yeah. Church happens in the sanctuary as normal at 10:30. Yes. If you would like to eat bacon while you're in church. <laughs> and specifically at Blue Fork. <laughs> you can either bring a strip of bacon into the sanctuary at 1030, or preferably you can <laughs> go up to Blue Fork where we have reserved the, the I called it the party room. Yeah, I don't, the, know what it, I don't know what they the call it. The group events room, their catering room. I don't know. We've reserved that. It'll be set up with tables and chairs. What you can do is get there a little bit before 10.30, go through the brunch line. They have a Sunday brunch line there. Bring that into that room, and then our service will be broadcast on the big screen in there. Mm-hmm. And so it's a just another opportunity for fellowship or to participate church in a, in a kind of different way. Yeah. Um, it's also a really good opportunity uh, to invite someone. So if, if you good point. know someone who's... You know, Who likes bacon. <laughs> sure. I think they have things other than bacon on the buffet. Um <laughs> I'm pretty sure they do have bacon. Um, if you know someone who's you know, curious about um, first pres, a, a neighbor, a, a colleague, a stranger, a whoever, uh, it's a good low entry uh, way to invite them to kind of get a little bit of a feel of the community of first pres, some of the people of first pres, um, and, and experience a worship service. In a very different setting, <laughs> but yeah. but um, a chance uh, for them to make a few connections um, to folks. So that's on on Sunday, March twelfth. Yep. 
not this Sunday. This Sunday is a right. communion Sunday, March 5th. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make sure you're here for that. But March 12th, come here to the sanctuary or make reservations and go up to... Uh, yeah. Uh, and if you are if, uh, if you are planning to go to that, if you would like to hear that, we would appreciate if you you'd let the church office know um, just so that we can get numbers to Blue Fork so we can make sure that we have enough chairs and um, and that sort of thing set up. So Yeah. Um, and it occurs to me another thing we should probably start mentioning is on March 26th, uh, which is a, a living history soup supper um, and presentation. We had one in the fall, in October or November. I don't quite remember which yep. it was. Um, so there, uh, we'll have a soup supper on Sunday evening. So come to the church. The soups will be here. You don't need to bring a soup. Uh, you can come have some soup, and then uh, we'll switch over to the sanctuary. And uh, folks are preparing um, presentations, uh, vignettes. I don't want to call them skits. Skits. First seems person narrative. First person narrative vignettes <laughs> uh, of folks throughout the history of First Press. Um, so we'll share more information about that um, as as we're getting closer to it. But folks might want to mark that your on calendars, their, on their calendar. and that's a now. Sunday evening that that event will be. Yep. So Sunday, March twenty sixth. We hope you can join us. Evening meaning like meal time, not like late. Correct. You know, I think like I think the soup supper will start around five. Something like that. And then we'll move into the sanctuary at 6, and yeah. there will be about an hour's worth of first-person narrative vignettes. Yeah. Let's fit that all onto a flyer. Is that also a French word, vignette? Yes. Oh, I know so much French. So much. Wow. I'm, I'm impressive. <laughs> no doubt about that. Is that it? I think that's, that covers it. Okay. Well, let's have a prayer. Loving and gracious God, um, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your insight. We thank you um, for creating us. Um, uh, Even though we can only know your wisdom in part, um, we thank you for the little pieces of it that we get, the little pieces of it um, that are still enough to comfort us, to guide our lives, to offer us purpose and meaning. Even though we can really only know your grace and your forgiveness in in part, we we thank you for the wonder of it that we do get to know. Uh, Help us, O God, to live our lives um, with a sense of humility and with a sense of being connected to you uh, and, and open to all of the wisdom that we can receive, uh, wherever it may come from. In your gracious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well then, with all those things said and done, until next time, toodaloo.